Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. I'm going to start by telling you a little story. In the mid-1990s, I had a brilliant lecturer and tutor called Dr. George Vassilokopoulos, who taught me anarchism and Marxism, in which he brought up all these interesting ideas of how the Marxists and anarchists saw value. And I always sort of understood that and thought about that from a political perspective, that this is why you needed revolutionary or, pre- you know, preferably evolutionary politics to make a better world. Because how things were valued was all about what society needed and wanted, what the state wanted to achieve. So value was more a question of politics and society than it was of dollars. And a few weeks ago, Stephen Hale and I were talking about what to read to do an episode, and we both agreed it would be fun to read Mariana Mazzucato's book, The Value of Everything. And Mariana begins the book with a very simple question that suddenly reminded me of sitting in George's class. Does value determine price, or does price determine value? So today, that's where we'll start on this episode of Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Only. How are you, David? Very good, and I don't have a pink coffee because I'm having it after the podcast today, trying something new. Mm, uh, is it in an attempt to celebrate your wonderful birthday today? Uh, no, it's more that we've got a meeting after, and if I double caffeinate, I might <laughs> frighten people, including the barista. <laughs> well, joining us for our celebratory birthday economics discussions, we have the returning ever-important guest on Blind Insights, Stephen Hale. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Oh, thanks very much, Tim, and happy birthday, David. Thank you, Stephen. Like, by the time this episode comes out, who knows how many days will be passed, so don't think you can use the date this comes out to know when to sort of, I don't know, Facebook bomb me for my birthday. It's already <laughs> happened. Meet me. It's over now. <laughs> well, to start the conversation, let's start with the uh, old financial advisor thing of price is what you pay and value is what you get, right? That's that's the old adage, is it not? Well, it's another variant. Mm. Mariana starts off somewhere near the beginning of the book. I think there's a quote from Plato about stories mattering and the stories we tell about the world uh, uh, matter very much, particularly when we tell essentially the same story over and over and over again and people get to the point where they take that story and that theory of value so much for granted that they don't even realise that they are seeing the world through through a, a, a prism, which is a, a a theory of value. And also, early on in the book, Mariana quotes the chief executive of Goldman Sachs. Mm. Soon yeah. after the global financial crisis, when the activities of institutions like Goldman Sachs had uh, created what was, at the time, the worst economic downturn uh, since the 1930s, stating that his employees were amongst the most productive people in the world. And what he meant by that was uh, the most highly paid people in the world. Or did he mean that they generated the most dollars through extraction and transfer of value away from productive activities? Because that's really what it means. Well, I, I guess, but I, I don't think I don't think that was. His I don't think he thinks view. I that think much. he thinks genuinely that the activities that they were engaged in, um, basically, because sure, those activities do the way we define gross domestic product now. They 
added to the until the whole thing imploded anyway added to the gross domestic product of the USA they in my opinion uh, were not creating anything of real value instead they were extracting value as you were just mm. uh, uh, suggesting and and indeed undermining so if value. we if we jump back into this initial question of does price determine value or value determine price what mariana unpacks in the initial part of the book is for how long this was a major discussion you know, by very important economists. So when you were studying to be an economist, did you get any exposure to all this or did you have to go away and teach yourself about the history of this being a critically important debate in economics? She discusses, so she she goes back before the classical economists. Mm, but she goes uh, back early. Yeah, but um, I'm sorry, this, she discusses uh, the mercantilists and uh, mm. the physiocrats um, but to just going back to the classical economists, the only thing I knew about classical economics when I was training was what I'd read by reading Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and I read that not really understanding much of it uh, rather foolishly before I started uh, um, Year 11 economics because I thought, well, if you're going to study economics... Read the core text. <laughs> yeah, why not? But we didn't mention it, really, again. And we, we've always... When you teach introductory economics, you might mention Adam Smith in the first week. Um, um, amongst other things, you, you might talk about the division of labour and you might uh, discuss his story of a pin factory, mm. which I believe was not entirely original. You can find the same story told by an Islamic scholar hundreds of years before. Yeah, it's not really new. It's <laughs> no. any workshop with multiple people with different levels of skill. Yeah. You've already got, we're adding value in a different way. So in reality, you read one of the most important books because you wanted to very early. And now it would be, meet, meet, we've visited Smith, we've been there for two minutes. But you would, in most universities, there would be no time to read it objectively it would I'm, be an I'm sure you could thing. choose to, at least in the uni I was at, the London School of Economics, it is basically an economics university. So I am sure that I could have uh, looked at the history mm. of economic thought, but I didn't choose that option, just as I could, mm. have, I could have done Marxism if I wanted to. But there was to. no compulsory subject called defining value, Absolutely. the critical question of economics. And uh, I would go so far as to say that more than 90% of economics graduates over the last 50 years have never thought about this. And, and this is sort of the critical thing, because like I said, when I started reading the book, I have limited economic knowledge, but I have a lot of political theory knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I immediately jump back going, hang on, one year of studying Marxism and anarchism with George in 1995, going, this was all about this question of how do we value things and then how does that affect politics? Well, I think, yeah, and I think Mariana has this background because she was a student at the New School in New York, which has Marxist scholars and uh, lots of heterodox economists, and so she would have had a completely well different education. exposure, Absolutely. quite possibly. Okay. To almost everybody else and to everybody um, who is working, or virtually everybody that's working in the Reserve Bank. Wow. and the Treasury, and every journalist that ever writes about economics, none of them have ever thought about these issues. And so um, there isn't that discussion of what it means to create wealth and what the distinction is between value creation and value extraction. 
Um, when they obsess about productivity, for them productivity just means anything. That makes dollars. That makes dollars, yeah. that adds to GDP. And what is GDP? It's just the sum to- total of all the dollars uh, um, that have been spent. Um, it means that it comes as a shock to them when when something like a pandemic happens and people start saying, well, hang on a minute, these essential workers are maybe more important uh, and more valuable in what they're doing than some of these highly paid investment bankers uh, and uh, we could end up going through lots of things that Mariana points out in the in the book why are occupations that are dominated by women um, undervalued undervalued mm. um, uh, why is the government seen as uh, as redistributing value or extracting and wasting value rather than co-creating mm. Um, particularly on the basis of earlier book, The Entrepreneurial State, which proves what I've always known, and that is that a really effective state does a better job of positioning the economy to do well. It's like when all these tech companies go, aren't we amazing? Look at the device we gave you. Yeah, dum-dums, every bit of core technology in it was done with state money in the 60s and 70s. Which is, that's exactly what's in the entrepreneurial yeah. state, yes amongst, yes, amongst other places. Of course, what she, what she points out is that uh, the classical economists did discuss these issues and they talked about, and we might not uh, have the same views that they had in the late 18th century and early 19th century, but they tried to distinguish between um, productive labour and unproductive labour. For them, um, uh, for them, uh, the value of economic activity went back to labour effort, but not all labour effort. Well, this is where I think it's a really important yeah. point, and we can bring the single phrase here that is constant through the book, this idea of the productive boundary, mm. that things are either within the productive boundary or they're outside. And it seems that inside the productive boundary starts with agricultural labour. That That's the starting point that everyone seems to ground and then extends out to people who perhaps take a raw material and physically add value to it by doing something to it. But the people who consistently stay outside of the productive boundary, essentially until the 1970s it seems, are anyone who is a rent seeker or simply moves money around. Well, I, no, I'd value. say until the 1870s, not, not, not the 1970s. Okay, well, you fill in the gap for me because I got a bit confused after Marx what they were actually arguing about. Okay, well, uh, yes, going, I mean, going back to Adam Smith, as we were saying, Adam Smith, as you just explained, he, he would have seen or he appeared to see uh, the creation of goods, anything which contributed towards uh, uh, physical goods as being productive labour, um, if you were involved in the production of services, like I am at the university, that, we are. that yep. would have been outside. Mm. That, would have, that would have been viewed as being unproductive labour, and productive labour um, created a surplus. Workers produced more than was necessary for them to subsist, and that surplus was then available to support unproductive workers like university lecturers and prime ministers and, and soldiers and and people, mm. uh, it was also available to uh, make payments to people who had unearned income or rent seekers, mm. and it was also available to go to the capitalists who uh, who uh, um, uh, ran the business, producing those goods. And uh, David Ricardo, who came along soon after Adam Smith, thought it was very important that a high uh, proportion of income went 
a high proportion of that surplus went to capitalists because they would reinvest in capital development so that there'd mm. be more goods and this was about adding value to the economy um, over time. And there's a clear distinction there that they seem to make between aristocrats who will spend the money on being fabulous mm. versus capitalists whose interest tends to be in reinvestment to get more activity. So absolutely, th- the difference was not heredity. The difference was, you know, what you do with money. Do you, you know, have a bath in, you know, Bollinger, or do you put the money into building another factory? Yeah, and Adam Smith apparently um, had the view that over time, eventually, almost a trickle down view, that as uh, as capital development progressed, living standards would increase. David Ricardo. And had a more Malthusian view and uh, thought that if uh, if wages started to increase, then that would just encourage an increase in the population by these workers and mm. uh, driving wages back down again so that uh, wages should be at subsistence levels. And this was why he was in favour of free trade and uh, because that would put downward pressure on food prices, which would mean capitalists could pay workers lower wages and there'd be more uh, more surplus for those capitalists to reinvest. And then, of course, Karl Marx comes along later on and he sees the surplus as exploitation and as a source of uh, conflict between the workers and the capitalists and one of the things that would uh, would uh, lead to the the downfall of of capitalism. But um, Marx and, and Ricardo and Smith, they all basically had some kind of labour theory of value they differed in what they would have included uh, in the within the um, productive labor set marx wouldn't have ex- wouldn't have excluded services mm. and, and that's why i sort of said 1970 not 1870 because to me that kind of marxian definition that what you and i do is facilitate other people being able to do more that is then productive. But I, I said 1870 because yeah, it was yeah. in 1870 that neo or about 1870 that neoclassical economics got going. Um, and neoclassical economics came in part from physics envy, from the development of the natural sciences that had taken place in the 18th and 19th centuries, and uh, a growing number of uh, uh, economists, they started to call themselves economists rather than political economists at the time, wanting to turn economics into a mathematical, scientific discipline to be like the natural sciences. They genuinely believed if they could only get the data, they'd be able to manage and control things precisely, um, like in physics. Uh, and that was part of it. Also, part of it was a political project because in the latter part of the 19th century, Marx's ideas were becoming increasingly threatening mm. as far as uh, the capitalist class was concerned. And within neoclassical economics, rather than the labour theory of value, we switch, and this was what you were saying before, towards uh, um, preferences governing value. Instead of uh, value leading to price, the mm. price people are prepared to pay for things becomes the appropriate way of thinking about the value of those things. Now, that takes for granted a number of assumptions. One assumption is that there is a a justifiable distribution of income in the first place so that one person's dollar is is just as good as somebody else's dollars. Uh, It also takes for granted uh, um, utility theory, the idea that uh, individuals are... 
uh, rational and what they're prepared to pay for something using their scarce dollars genuinely reflects its, uh, it, it, its value to them. And along with that, you get the idea that uh, um, um, the division of output, as long as markets are reasonably competitive, between um, between workers, between labour and uh, land and capital, is is equitable and reflects the productivity of each of those factors of production. So. If you are getting a low wage, it's because you're not very productive, that's something wrong with you or you're full or uh, you're lacking in incentives or something. Profit is seen by the neoclassicals as the just reward for being enterprising and taking risk. Interest is seen as a just reward for you being prepared to defer your own consumption to the future and rent even is seen as a reward for um, landlords for tying their wealth up. Okay, this land, is good. So it's you not exploitative anymore. Yeah. And and that theory of value which came in in the 1870s, basically for those reasons, is what we have had, albeit challenged by Keynes in the 1930s, but basically um, ever since then. So value is depends on preferences, which uh, determines willingness to pay for things. Willingness to pay for things de- uh, uh, um, determines the prices and what things ought to be seen as being worth. And one of the prices out there, of course, is wages. So if you're highly paid working for Goldman Sachs, that you means must be valuable. you must be valuable. Somebody's mm. prepared to pay you that. And how many times have you heard people say, oh, people get paid what they're worth? Mm. Mm. Now, I've always known it's not true because yeah. that's not how society works. So I suppose the significant thing I want to add here is Thanks for filling in that gap because what I saw was two things were happening simultaneously. We move towards valuing services, but you're, you know, you've added in the other half now and showed they happen concurrently. We valued services, but we also, as you said, got to the beginning of neoclassical economics, which became reductionist. So preference became something that defined value at the same time that services could be valued. And there's no no interest in social class anymore. There's no interest in history anymore. Neoclassical economics is basically a static theory of distribution in a... In a Could um, we call it stagnant or would that be mean? Uh, you can be mean if you like, okay, David. Well, look, it, yeah, but it sounds, there's logical time in neoclassical economics, but there's no historical So it, once again, it seems like this is... It would have been one of the causes for why behavioural economics had to go, we don't have the rational economic being. They don't exist. Everyone's Uh, cultural. Everyone's historical. Absolutely. And there's no proper story of money in neoclassical economics. There is, uh, it is basically ahistorical. And whereas Smith and Ricardo and Marx, all in their different ways, were philosophers, and Adam Smith was more famous I mean, there were no economists in his day, but he was a famous philosopher. Yeah. Of course, he wrote an a, 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 a important book, a philosophy, the theory of, of moral sentiments. Mm. Um, all that disappeared from economics. So in we the late really 19th go to century. the slide rule of what will the data tell me. So there's a sort of debate in the 20th century in statistics between uh, the frequentist and the probability. Probab- those people who believe in probability, <laughs> yeah, the probability, yeah, probabilityists. I don't know. But people who count things, if they can't count it, it's not real. Whereas people who are looking for probability go, well, where's the evidence heading? What's the trend line? 
So it's almost like economics were doing really well and thinking about people and history and the implications of people having more money, more time, doing different jobs. All these things were going to affect the economy. And then went, oh, that's just too hard to calculate. And Keynes had more in common, although the terms we use have changed since Keynes wrote the general theory. So when Keynes is criticising neoclassical economists, he often calls them classical economists. But ah, Keynes, that's confusing for me when I read it. I'm like going, hang on, this means he's picking on the ones I sort of like. No, well, he sort of liked them too. In mm. all, not David Ricardo uh, so much. The, um, no, but he seemed highly like abstract, Smith. Re- yes. Mm. Well, Adam Smith... Um, uh, Adam Smith uh, did what I sometimes call hard economics. He was interested in trying to describe uh, the world and its institutions in a realistic way. Mm-hmm. Um, David Ricardo was one of the first economists to develop logical abstract theories almost divorced. So he was the first one to reify the world. Yeah, is and, my model and, that, and, and my world fit it. somewhere in the general theory, Keynes basically said that Ricardo constructed a world uh, divorced from reality and, and then lived within it. Uh, and, oh, what and, an insult! It's perfect. <laughs> I love it. And and that was Keynes' view of uh, of uh, neoclassical economics, and he himself was the student of Alfred Marshall, who was the most important neoclassical economist in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, who's Principles of Economics for many years was the standard um, economics textbook. Some of the things you were talking about you can find, I think, in Keynes in in both his treatise on probability in 1921 and also his interest in, in history. You can find uh, a, in a variety of places, including uh, the economic consequences of the peace after the Treaty mm. of Versailles. When all his notes on being fascinated by the history of money in weird places, you can see he could see history, places, people affect each other. And the post-Keynesians, who of course were the fundamentalist Keynesians, the original ones were all of his colleagues and uh, and students. So Joan Robinson through to Jeff Harcourt, that, y- that path. Yes, they well they see their roots very much as in, um, in uh, classical economics and a little bit in Marxism. Mm. as well. Keynes, I believe, although I haven't read it, in an in a early draft of the general theory um, had some uh, very favourable comments about uh, some of Marx's monetary mm. analysis, but then it was removed before publication. Okay, because it would have just been too dangerous in that period with the Soviet Union. And he was a well, he was a uh, he was trying to persuade people in the middle of a Great Depression to change their minds about things. So mm. he went out of his way, sometimes much too far, out of his to way to be persuasive rather than to be frightening. That's that's right. Yeah, yeah. but then of course you're you're right. After the Second World War, um, with the uh, Mont Pelerin Society and Hayek and Friedman and the rest of them. Um, Gradually, they push the neoclassical barrow uh, further uh, and further in more and more extreme way. And then, absolutely, by the time we get to the 1970s, we're back in the 1870s. Yeah, so what, this is yeah. the amazing thing. is This period where services switch over into the productive side of the productive boundary could have been really helpful in that we could have worked out why a university lecturer, why an author, add value to the world. But under the neoclassical model where they couldn't be counted, you sort of have a brilliant moment and a problem simultaneously. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, 
Mariana points out lots of other things in the book that are interesting, that things I didn't know. Um, to be honest, I didn't know that until about 1970, net interest income in the banking sector was not classified as part of gross domestic product. Ah, and now you've leapt into the next important thing, yeah. and this is after World War II, this idea of the modern conception mm. of the system of national accounts. Mm. And the, the book that the Americans put out to define how to do it, that then other countries read and go, oh, that's an interesting idea, has mm. to be updated to just patch holes because they're still trying to work out where the productive boundary should be. Uh, absolutely, and there are some arbitrary decisions in GDP. Not everything that's in GDP involves spending. So, for example, there is a, um, an imputed rent on owner-occupied dwellings. You don't pay rent on the home that you live in if you own the home. But um, uh, in gross domestic product, it is treated as though notionally you are paying rent to yourself because it's a way to put a value in of what it means to be living in a house. But but if you are uh, doing if you are um, doing if you're cooking a meal for someone if you're doing housework to, uh, for that someone isn't counted. that's not counted yeah. and and uh, it's arbitrary and it is um, many people including the feminist economist Ma- Marion Waring would argue it's basically because those tasks were largely done by. Um, women, and mm. and Mariana makes the point as far as the role of the government is concerned. Um, government services are included in GDP, but they're valued at cost. Yeah, which, which is ridiculous <laughs> because yeah. it neglects to see the historical and cultural significance of what the state does on our behalf to make a better world for us. Indeed, yeah. And this whole approach to thinking about value then stops us thinking about where value comes from and how it's co-created and to just refer back a little bit to uh, Mariana's uh, previous book on the entrepreneurial state, um, the fact that those billions of dollars which are, we say, earned, even that word is problematic, that that are um, extracted by... Or transferred one or the other, but they're certainly not earned. Global monopolists like Apple and and uh, Amazon and and Facebook. First of all, the technology um, that those businesses use was, um, largely speaking, developed in the public sector in the first place. And secondly, to, to pick on a point which is often made by Yanis Varoufakis, um, if when we think about the word capital, we are thinking about something that can be used to generate wealth over time. Um, uh, Every time you do a Google search, you contribute to the capital of Google. Google, Mm. we all do. Because of the ad that pops up to know more money. And they have more information about you so they can Mm. target their ads better. So it's money and knowledge, which both things are contributing to value. And you're using your phone to find your way or to uh, locate the amount of traffic that's on the road ahead of you. Well, Mm. it's telling, you're telling uh, the organisation that's provided that software to you that um, you're on the road Going here to do this, and they uh, then see what you purchase a minute later with your phone. So that that's, mm. that causes Yanis Varoufakis to suggest that uh, um, for those biggest companies in the world, 10% of their shares ought to be put into a fund, and that fund then ought to be used to, well, it, in my view, one you could use a fund like that to deal with some of our... Uh, um, Pressing problems. ...colonial and climate reparations. 
to some low-income countries, he would uh, pay a citizen's dividend mm. to uh, every individual. But um, these are interesting discussions to have, and they are discussions which it's basically impossible to have unless you start thinking about what value is and and where it comes from. Well, this leads us into the final step, which is again me saying 1970, and that is the point of apparently moving all the unproductive activities related to banking and financial services across the productive boundary into GDP. So there's this magical point where suddenly it looks like most of our GDP growth for the last 50 years has not been because productive things got better, but because formerly unproductive activities in the financial sector get to be counted. And we end up with four of the five biggest companies in Australia being banks. Yep, and we also end up with more crashes more regularly. The more financialization moves value around and extracts value, but doesn't invest in doing things in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. That overlaps again with another um, uh, another post-Keynesian economist who would have had, if he was still alive, a lot of uh, sympathy with Mariana's view of the world, which is Hyman Minsky and his mm. financial instability hypothesis. Yeah, Minsky made more sense to me when I read this because mm. you know the times you've talked about Minsky have then gone away and nothing's available as an audio book and only mm. some things are available as Kindle. I'm like, really, dudes, you're not helping the blind guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. They should be. There should be an audio book as uh, of uh, Randall Ray's uh, uh, book mm. about Minsky. Minsky, why Minsky absolutely. Matters. We should definitely. I have the book. I have to read it, and not just, a, I'll read it to you. All right. <laughs> not, a, not, a, not, not anything by Minsky himself, who was not a great writer. No, so you wanted it to be about I, Minsky. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I, I don't suppose Stephanie is listening to this. I do apologise, Stephanie, in case you do listen to this, and I've just uh, had a go at Hyman Minsky. But I find Minsky very difficult to read. Uh, Randall Ray is more better. Is who was the guy who interpreted Doctor Johnson? I've forgotten now. Samuel uh, Johnson had uh, somebody else uh, explained Johnson's ideas better than Johnson did. But uh, anyway, <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, going back to the point, uh, that that's a great book to read. Um, there is a whole different way of thinking about the world, which is going to be, I think, more useful in the future when we're going to have to well, we're well overdue with this, we have to start asking ourselves questions about what kind of future society we want to create, what we value and what we don't value. And it's not so much about um, being technologically neutral or the government being neutral or avoiding picking winners. We as a society have to actually um, uh, have to... Decide which direction we what want to go. What world do in. we want to live in? What do we value as a society? So, have we let? So, am I interpreting this correctly? I feel like every example we've been talking about in the last hundred years, let's say, or hundred and fifty, is putting price or letting price determine value. Yeah, would that be letting correct? dollars define what is a good thing to do? If we made dollars, it must be okay. And worse than that, getting to the point where we take that for granted so much that we're not aware we're doing it. Okay. Well, I asked one of my best former students yesterday, okay, have a ponder on this. Does price determine value or Mm -hmm. does value determine price? Mm -hmm. And he went, well, of course price determines value because it's all he's ever heard in his whole life. It's the only way that you would be able to justify profit on... Everything. Yeah. And yet I've had this inkling in my head ever since having an amazing economics teacher in year 11 
who kept putting these weird bits in that I didn't understand but made me realise, all this mainstream stuff, somehow he doesn't like this and he's smart. I should pay attention. I don't know what to do, but I don't know what to believe this crap. And it's funny, the more I learn, the more I realise the crap is crap and that there are so many more important things that used to be part of debates. And you know, to go back to my example of the frequentists versus the prob- probabilists, I'll call them, yeah. no, probably not, but I'll call them the probabilists. Yeah, that was a massive war within statistics. Whether you could only work with what you could count or whether you could make assumptions based on trends from observation. And it seems that economics with behavioural economics is on the verge again of going, hang on, there's more to economics. With MMT, there's more to economics. With the fact that you know the post-Keynesians keep saying interesting things, there's more to be economics. So there's so many ways. With the ecological economists too, with Kate yeah. Raworth and with that whole and donut with model. Yeah, um, and with Phil Lawn. You're thinking about what do you value yeah. and why. So hmm. how... There's two different views there, I should say. There's a, the Phil view is you need to, and the Robert Costanza view, to mm. name somebody else who was at our conference in January, mm-hmm. is you need to put dollar values on things, otherwise they'll be ignored. But What's all humans understand? values reflect what we value. It's not the other way around, as you were saying. Mm. There is the Kate Rowers view, which I also have sympathy for, which is that we need a panel of things which are important to us. Mm, precisely. And actually sometimes it doesn't make sense to put dollar values on them. Instead, we need to say, um, well, her donut is based on the UN Sustainable Development Indicator, yep. but, mm-hmm. but uh, you need to say here are eight or ten... Um, key things. Key things which are important for quality of life that we have to try to ensure that everybody has. And here are another nine planetary boundaries that if we're beyond them, we have to rapidly mm. come back inside them again. And that it almost doesn't make sense to put dollar values on them because then you start adding them up. And it's no good adding them up because if you get the climate change bit wrong, It'll implode everything anyway. else doesn't matter yeah. anyway. See, I'd start with a human security and societal yeah. security base and go, until you have human security and societal security, you can't have anything else. Mm. Right, but, so go up you are uh, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of economic needs. Basically. <laughs> just start with the hierarchy of needs and economics is another way to try and get there. And, of course, Keynes understood this in 1913, his essay, Economic Possibilities for Our yeah. Grandchildren. Mm. So it's, again, he's... It's uh, not new. It's not new. He was... Uh, it, we don't have a Keynes today. <laughs> but we do have people like Mariana and uh, mm. Kate Roberts and Stephanie and, and others, and between them... There is a new story, I think, um, mm. emerging, and uh, the students, you know, young people—not just young people, but particularly young people—once they're exposed to these ideas, um, uh, it, it makes economics seem interesting and important mm. again, instead of uh, instead of dull and boring. But for the most part, to go right back to the beginning, it is still the case now that in university departments across Australia and around the world, they're not exposed to these ideas. If we go back to Mariana's sort of first point, that we need to you know, to have a good story, mm. and there are so many areas of economics now which can see this deeper, more significant story, what could the common narrative thread be to help bring these diverse people together? 
Oh, that's a difficult one. I know, and I, I, again, uh, I don't have the economics language. To so to me, I think this basic thing of does price determine value or does value determine price, that could be the thing where they all, by joining in that conversation and very deliberately making that a conversation that doesn't ever stop again. Absolutely. That, or or you could even take point, price maybe? out of it. Um, what to do with value and who do we value and how highly do we value them and, and why? I think that's those are the sorts of questions that we uh, we need to be asking, and this is a good time to ask them because in the middle of a pandemic, really those investment bankers don't matter. They don't contribute value, no. and it's obvious that they don't contribute value. Some, and we can go back then a bit to Adam Smith. It may be that some of the things these guys are doing, some of the things these guys are doing, are useful. Um, but they are then uh, uh, perhaps essential supporting services, but they may not directly contribute. They may not um, be inside that productive boundary. boundary. And it seems to me that this question, again, is another thing that could really be debated and understood better, and that is, okay, we need value to be able to be transferred, so that's an important thing for financial services mm. to do. But... If financial services mean there is more focus on returning value to shareholders than there is on enhancing the the sort of business as a whole so that all stakeholders do better. I don't shareholders know. are such a small group versus stakeholders. Absolutely right, yes. I've, um, and that, of course, is part of what needs to uh, happen in the future and what already happens in other countries better than it does here. But you reminded me of another quote from Keynes there, which I'd get wrong again. Uh, if, uh, something like, uh, if the capital development of a country is uh, left to a casino, then it's likely to be a job ill done. Mm. And that's awesome basically, <laughs> that's basically what we ended up with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as a result of the increasing financialization of our economy and what Hyman Minsky called money manager capitalism we were in a better position in some ways in the 50s and 60s albeit with different problems yeah, what different problems now. but it seems to me everything i read a better situation yeah um and in some ways we need to go back to that mindset but we have to engage with a different set of problems because we need to find a way of building a green equitable future mm, but um, it seems to me we could go back to someone like eisenhower who was able to go, okay, I'm a Republican, but all these things make a better society. A better society is more robust, is going to be more productive, so let's just spend the money. Uh, it's a good foundation to start from. Just go, let's spend the money on different things. He spent large amounts of money on destabilising South America. Bad man. Absolutely. But he yeah. also spent lots of money on improving American education. Good man. So let's just divide things one by one and not tar anyone with a brush of being all good or all evil, but going... Understanding can be applied to things in different ways. And let's start taking seriously um, being prepared for pandemics, for example. Yeah, yeah that'd and, be a good start. And valuing, uh, as uh, you were saying before we started, uh, valuing uh, um, the safety and mm. security of a quarantine system and ensuring that you have really after this, surely everybody ought to think we need to have permanent excess capacity mm. in the health system. Like sovereign capability yeah. is a values question. Absolutely. 
Yes, and and it, the, the, the point about value is it's much, much more complicated than the neoclassical story. There was no good scientific reason for the neoclassical story to evolve in the first place. They constructed a, a vision of the world which was an entirely which was an abstract, entirely fictitious vision. And going mm. back to that Keynes quote about Ricardo, they, mm. they continue to live, many of them, within it, without realising that's the problem. Well, and they did it, which meant <laughs> neoliberals could follow. Mm. Reification was already normalised. Absolutely, yes. The neoliberals since the 1970s have taken the logic of the neoclassical economists of the late 19th century and taken it to an extreme. And whereas those neoclassical economists in the late 19th century were talking about competitive markets, they've also ignored that too. So we have got to the point where nobody talks about monopoly profits as being unearned rent Mm. any longer, and they don't distinguish between, uh, uh, not really, between competitive markets and and, uh, monopoly markets. And free trade around the world has not delivered... Uh, and well, it's not free trade. <laughs> well, absolutely, and uh, uh, absolutely. Adam Smith, of course, when he talked about free trade in the first place, didn't mean completely free of government intervention. Anyway, he meant no. free of rent. Yeah, because <laughs> the significant thing for him is it wasn't being skimmed mm. by people that would have a bath in Bollinger. Indeed, and that is what's happening with Amazon, and Facebook, mm. and Google, and Apple. And just those. continue listing the and, corporations and, and, that exist because and public the, made it possible. And 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 they have pressurised governments into extending uh, intellectual protection. Uh, and uh, every free trade deal that's signed, and this is the problem with them, is signed with these monopoly capitalists on mm. the inside, deciding basically um, what's what's going. While we're at, Excluded. We don't know what's going on in the discussions until the trade deal is signed. The 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 big uh, organisations are there on the inside, and of course they're on the inside of the political process. Mm. They mm. Uh, put all those resources into lobbying. I'm thinking back to Cameron Murray's. They've made themselves mates. central to how value is defined by the political elite. Absolutely. So the political right. elite cannot see beyond. These are what bring value and sustain our position. But the political elite set the va- set the values for the culture as well, right? Well, they it's, should, but they're not. Well, it, They are becoming it, reflective of those that they, by intention or stupidity, serve. But you could could you say that the people, let, let's say that, uh, I, don't, maybe, I don't want to be mean to the average person or workers at Amazon, but could you say that they've undersold themselves? They've, they've accepted a price that is lower than their value in terms well, of the their Well, the greatest labor. success of neoliberalism has been to convince people that their only value is dollars. Right. That has been the greatest success of a miserable ideology. Well, I mean, we can say that, um, to take Gra- David Graeber's point, that all human interaction is is um, exchange. Yeah, but debt is management. Debt is how you manage people. Yes. Debt is not a total reduction to whatever the local currency is. Debt is saying, I need you politically controllable. Mm. And I can use debt to control you. But control does not mean absolute reduction to dollar value. So we have taken the historical norm of control Mm. and made it an absolute limit on value. And people, ordinary people, the great mass of people just accept what's offered to them. Because what what choice are they going to 
Yeah. Well, they don't remember that the other choice is you know, conflagration because conflagration is not a nice choice. But historically, that is the other choice and it used to bubble up pretty regularly. But again, is that not just because of the, the political culture setting? No, it's society going, we are more valuable than this, and if you bastards won't recognise it, we'll talk. Oh, no, no, what I mean is accepting, is, is not is 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 not realising or, or thinking that conflagration is a, a viable option is because the, the political elite set a cultural value that that is no longer a viable option. Yeah, but this is, that- is where Marx was so dangerous. Right. He was the first one to write about the alienation of labour, mm. that labour didn't even know it was being screwed without lube. Yeah, but I guess it doesn't. Yeah, right, there you go. And the neoclassical economists build on that, and then the neoliberals, you know, basically took it to Hollywood. And in the end, they <laughs> basically castrated Marx, didn't they? Well, yeah. You know, see, the terrible thing with Marx is his analysis of how the world worked was outstanding. Mm. His suggestion for what to do about it was delusional. Mm. Would, would you say that that would be the fault of the neoclassicists, or would you say that that is the that is the um, because it's it was opportunistic. Would you would would you say opportunistic criticism on failed regimes? Like, because if you say that Marxism is taken to the, it, it so the narrative is that it's been it's taken to its point in some communist regimes. You would say that then it's just an opportunity to. Well, we need to look back and go. His analysis of how the world works is outstanding, yes, but not right. follow his path of how to fix it. I'm not a Marxist. Okay, no. sure. His analysis uh, of how the world works is awesome, but who wants to live in the world he suggests? Right. Yeah. I am essentially. I see myself as a modern Keynesian. Yeah. Uh, I think that Keynes understood Marx's analysis of capitalism, but Keynes uh, was married to a Russian had visited Soviet Russia and before anybody else. Yeah, and realised it was a disaster. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So uh, Keynes set out to save and reform capitalism. That's basically what we need to do again because there isn't an alternative, uh, a radically alternative Mm. system available. Well, if we look at Zach Carter's book, where Keynes always looked forward to meeting the young socialist students because he thought they've got the fervour They've got the brains to see the system doesn't work. Now I just need them on a slightly better path. Yeah, and, and he's that, exactly right. That's what, and I think that's what people like Mariana are trying and to do. Kate Roweth and Stephanie Kelton and others are trying to do now. And uh, I think eventually, well, eventually we'll be successful. I just hope we're not eventually successful because we're five to ten years down the track, and the climate crisis is just so. Appallingly obvious to everybody that everybody turns around and starts to question things. I can only see it emptying up like that. I can only see that Max Planck physicist quote roll across my head. What's the um, new ideas are basically only successful because the old ideas die with the people who believe them. Well, and the, 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 the neoliberals, they were pushing from the 1940s, really, the Mont Pelerin Society. Yeah. And eventually, I know there was the revolution in Chile, but eventually they took advantage of the um, oil price explosion, mm. which I suppose was related to the Arab-Israeli war, but would have OPEC would have uh, asserted their power at some point um the crisis was not really directly related to what no it was convenient to them this they were they had been preparing since 1946 Mm. 
to take advantage of any opportunity. They'd learnt that you can reify, you can use an ideology to transform the world. And if you convince people the ideology is true, you get your supposed preferred world. Never mind it doesn't properly explain it. And it can't really explain the value of people, the value of the environment, or the value of anything that actually keeps the world going around in a healthy manner. But their their view of the world is collapsing now, or already collapsed. And uh, um, we, of course we had the financial crisis... Um, we are going to have a climate crisis, but it may be something uh, other than that. God, God help us if it's another pandemic. But uh, 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 people are asking questions yep. now, which they weren't do. I weren't doing. I've been teaching economics for decades, and um, I've never known it like it is now. An audience from reading Mariana's book, I think, a good question to ask your local politicians, your federal politicians. It's just ask them, what do you value? Absolutely. And how do you value it? And they won't be able to answer you. And that is the beginning of make them reflect to get beyond their limited and ineffective ideologies. Because we may not have the answers either, but I think we've got a pretty good idea what the better questions should be. And it really, it starts with, what do you value? And how did you determine its value? And start from there. I think that's a pretty good way of finishing off, David. Hey, unless there's something you think I've missed, we can always add an extra bit. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Gentlemen, I thank you for allowing me to sit at the table with you. Um, it's a, uh, it was a fantastic conversation to, to, to mostly, mostly witness. So, yeah, thank you very much, Stephen, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. Thanks, David, and happy birthday again, even though it's not your birthday anymore when yeah. people are listening to this. But <laughs> It'll only be sl- Maybe it means I'm going to have a multi-day birthday. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is a good thing. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, listeners. And remember, think about what you value and how and why you value it. And then ask people what they value and how and why they value it. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Thank you.